Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you enjoy Jerusalem Unplugged, you may also like to listen to Stories from Palestine podcast. My name is Crystal. I am originally from the Netherlands. I am married to a Palestinian and I live in Beit Safafa between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. I studied history and tour guiding and I produce a weekly podcast called Stories from Palestine. You can find it on your favorite podcast player or go to the website storiesfrompalestine.info. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Massa, and today it's with great pleasure that my guest is Alon Arad. Alon is the new executive director of Emet Shaveh. Alon grew up in Tel Aviv and, in fact, still lives in, in the city. He's married to a physician, which is an interesting combination uh, between an archaeologist and a physician, raising two daughters and a dog. He has a degree in archaeology and currently is completing uh, his MA degree at Tel Aviv University. Now, he worked mostly on the early Bronze Age and focused on ancient urbanism and immigration. But now he found a different kind of interest in archaeology and tried to work on the question of archaeology serving as a political tool in Israel, a topic that we will certainly discuss later in the podcast. And now, he is the director, as I said earlier, of Emek Shave. Alon, welcome. Thank you, uh, Roberto, for uh, this great opportunity to finally uh, be here talking to you and uh, to all of your listeners. Uh, it's a great honor. Thank you. Now, the first question I want to ask is very much about Emek Shave. First of all, if you briefly can tell us what does this word mean and what is the main purpose of your organization? And then later we're going to delve more into the history and the activities of your organization, but just to sort of uh, get our feet wet, you know, about the, uh, uh, the, the NGO itself. Okay, uh, so Eric Chavez stands for basically, let's say, common ground. The exact translation, it would be the middle that is in between, let's say, two mountains the valley that uh, stands right in the middle, that both sides needs to go down. And it's a metaphorically very uh, beautiful to, uh, thing to, to think about, that both sides have to walk down towards each other and giving up a little bit from their you know, position, their strategic position might be uh, in some way, their political positions, their economic position, whatever it is, and you have to go down towards your uh, co-partner or uh, the other side, basically. 
So this is the name. Uh, Amik Shaveh was founded by archaeologists uh, some 12 years ago, actually, in 2009. Um, I think there were few excavations or few archaeological projects that were kind of landmarks that, that uh, were in the heart of these uh, archaeologists that uh, founded Emek Chavez. Uh, the, the main one is obviously the project in Sidwan, the City of David project, uh, but also projects such as the uh, building of the separation burial, the separation wall, which uh, during the construction, some excavation had to be done. And I, I guess we'll talk about later, what does it mean salvage excavation? Uh, so there were a lot of salvage excavations along the way that basically destroyed a lot of archeological sites. And from that point onwards, uh, the founders uh, understood that uh, there is a need for a different discourse, mainly among archeologists. So the main audience at the beginning, the first few years were archeologists uh, in, in, and, and the change theory, change that was meant to be was that archeologists will view their work in a more, uh, let's say, broader perspective on what they do and what is uh, the meaning of what they do in present day. And so this was kind of the foundation of Amit Chavez. And since then, obviously a lot of things happened uh, around uh, Israel, Palestine, Jerusalem in, in the field of archeology. span and there were many uh, projects uh, in many archaeological sites, but also in more, let's say, policy-making uh, uh, actions that Amik Shaveh was involved in, uh, some uh, legal and litigation. Uh, also, uh, we had some, some court appeals. And mainly, we developed a knowledge base around the politicization of archaeology in the whole region. Now, before moving into activities uh, of the Mekshaveh organization, I want to ask you something about yourself. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background? And actually, how did you uh, become eventually the director of Mekshaveh? Oh, wow. So this is uh, an interesting uh, question, actually. Uh, so I first came to know Amik Shaver. I think it was somewhere around the summer of 2013. That's not around, that's quite specific actually. Uh, when I went to excavate Tel Bet Yerach, which is up north and next to the Sea of Galilee on the shore of the Sea of the Galilee. Uh, and the professor was actually one of the founders of Amik Shaver, Professor Rafi Greenberg. And he laid on the, the table, you know, of the students where we, we came in, uh, some, some booklets of Emek Shaveh about the Sidwan and, and the city of David. And I was, it was such a contrast because for me as a student, you know, you, you, you go to university and you take a class on a certain period of time or certain I know, types of vessels or uh, and a typology and all these kind of very professional courses. And then you get this booklet, which talks about archeology span in a whole different context, a whole different perspective. And you try to think about it and, and you realize that you have so much influence on, on, on people that just live around this area, and I was I was finishing my my BA and I started my MA and I was not involved with Amik Shaveh back then because I was too busy with you know finishing my studies and and everything and and to this race of 
uh, academical race. And somewhere in 2019, I decided to leave academia as, as a, a place where I thought to, to, you know, to keep on and have my career. And I started working in a strategic consulting company in Tel Aviv. And I specialize in crisis management and conflict negotiation and so many other stuff that obviously does not relate to archaeology. Uh, and and I, I worked there for a couple of years. And last summer, when uh, there was a call for applicants uh, to replace uh, Yoni and Mizrahi, the, both one of the co-founders which directed Amek Shaveh in the past 12 years, uh, I thought it's, it's a position that I can, in which I can fulfill all of my dreams, I would say, in archaeology, okay? This is how I got here. Well, that's a fascinating path. Oh, again, <laughs> like with many other guests, there's always uh, one path that someone uh, envisions for himself or herself, and then things turn sometimes very different. One interesting thing about uh, Emek Shaveb, talking about the organization itself, is, you know, if one is interested in browsing the website, you get this sort of a sense of the various activities. And one that caught my eye and, you know, made me read a lot of the material available on uh, emekshaveb.org is this idea of uh, community excavations. And I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about the concept of community excavation and exactly how, how it works for the organization, who are the people involved? And perhaps if you can tell us a little bit more about the example of a Mamilla community excavation. Okay, so first of all, let's, let's rethink a little bit what does it mean to do archeology span and who has, in a way, the power to, to do archaeology. So by law, if you think about it, uh, you know what, let's go a little bit even a bit back. Okay, so if we'll go and think about uh, archaeology and, and the state. Okay, so basically most states at the moment in the world, in the Western world especially, kind of took over. They took over archaeology uh, because I think it uh, a bit related to the connection between, you know, national movements and history and how history serves national movements. And, and what states, most of, most of the states did uh, is that they regulated archaeology. So not everyone is, is uh, can, can just go, you know, in, in the field and, and, and excavate what, what they want. In some places in Europe, they have certain problems, let's say with uh, metal detectors. But here, uh, following the British mandate, they brought the concept of, you know, state, stateship and everything, modern stateship. Um, but also archeology span was regulated. So when you want to excavate, you an archaeologist, you or me, or any art there, archaeologist, if I want to excavate a certain site, I have to get permits for that. And these permits is basically uh, the state way of telling people there are people who can excavate, who has the knowledge, who has the capacity, who has uh, I know, academic affiliation, all these kind of um, issues that needs to, to, to be taken care of when you do archaeology, basically. Uh, and, and this differs from people who are not allowed to. And those who are not allowed to, we call them, you know, antiquity thieves or vandalists or whatever. Uh, so uh, now, now, if you think, who is the state? It's the people, basically, in let's say a, a topical way. So the state gives the archaeologist this piece of land in some way of custody uh, to do what he does, and 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 in most cases, 
this archaeologist, they don't have to negotiate. They don't have to talk. They don't have to be in any form of communication with people who live in, next, around the archaeological sites. So basically, us archaeologists are coming from wherever we come from. It can be from abroad, and it can be me going to Tel Betirach in the Sea of Galilee from Tel Aviv. Uh, from basically outside, outsiders, and to do whatever we want. True, we have, you know, certain methodological rules and ethical rules, and, and, and we follow a certain way, but, but basically we're outsiders that come and change the place. Uh, and, and we can change it however we want. We can, we can the, the difference between archaeologists, the knowledge that we have, the power that we have through this knowledge uh, in comparison to, I don't know, a farmer that just, you know, cultivate his land, he doesn't know what the, this piece of pottery means. He doesn't know what this uh, uh, structure means. And I have absolute power to change the story. I can tell him, yeah, this is the temple of, or this is the palace of, this is a wine storage room, or this is just a regular house. And so on and so on. And then I create this narrative of it, whether I want to or I don't want to. Uh, sometimes I want to have a very narrow narrative, such as uh, this is a house, this is a structure. Uh, but sometimes I want a much bigger narrative. I want it to be King David Palace, or I want it to be uh, a certain, I know, a battle. It can be everything. And in this, place where, where I don't want to use the word struggle, but the, this place in the tension, this is where I think community archaeology comes into place. It gives the community involvement within sites that are in their immediate surroundings, okay? And, and through this process, they actually, in some way, I don't want to say claim ownership, but they're more involved in both the actual work itself, obviously. And if you have read on, on such projects, you know they, they come into the field and they do some excavation and some places they do some restoration and they get involved with the finds and they wash the pottery and they sit with the pottery reading and you know we tell them uh, this is from the iron age or the bronze age uh, but but through the process they relate to the site in a much different way so it's they're not just visitors on the site there are active contributors to the formulation of the site to the creation of the narrative um, and, and it, this brings a lot of our, uh, also responsibility on the archaeologist itself because we cannot anymore tell stories that endanger or threat in a way the narrative or the stories or the relationship of these uh, residents or these people that come to the sites and we cannot use them to create a narrative that endangers their own existence in a way. So this is the, the more theoretical, I think, perspective, to my opinion, on it. Let's move to another activity of uh, that I found extremely interesting, given also the uh, political controversies of archaeology. You're interested in, uh, and you did so, uh, you find objections, particularly when when you see planning and constructions committees, uh, you know, working on certain areas either of Jerusalem, of Palestine, or Israel, and therefore they sort of uh, discard, neglect, or create their own narratives about some archaeological sites. And I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about this particular area, and uh, if you also have examples. Particularly related to Jerusalem, where Emek Shavet tried to object to some of the, uh, let's say, as you said, legal public activities. Yeah, so so the legal sphere in Emek Shavet is actually quite interesting because we normally talk 
among archaeologists in a level uh, that is professional, that is ethical, which is not uh, legal, uh, uh, straightforward legal. And with the public, we talk, you know, about narrative and politics and how they they being combined. And the legal sphere is a, uh, is a place where the discourse is very much different because there is a place where we can say that it was a major injustice. There was something which is being hidden. Uh, for example, freedom of uh, information uh, uh, appeals that we had. Now, in, in this field, we had filed several complaints along the years, actually quite many, uh, on, on different subjects. So we had, for example, uh, and, uh, some appeals regarding the activity of the Elad Foundation in the city of David and how excavations are being done in tunnels and the planning process of the Kedem compound center of Elad. Uh, unfortunately, uh, in, in most cases, uh, court uh, stood uh, with, with the settlers organizations. Uh, but we also appealed against, for example, the more uh, recent cable card plan, which is basically a planning process appeal. Uh, in, in, in this matter, we had a very big coalition with architects and, and nature protection and everything, and all these kind of other organizations that we appealed together. Um, and, and basically the idea was that the state of Israel has set some uh, uh, rules in the surrounding of the old city. And, and this is basically the, what we can call now this uh, Jerusalem Wall National Park. Now, the idea of having a national park is that you won't develop anything near the city walls in order to maintain its unique uh, character and, and, and to keep it visible and to keep, you know, it, uh, the, the landscape around it uh, undeveloped and, and, and kept uh, in a more, let's say, historical, with you know, brackets, historical, uh, authentic. And then came the uh, government with their plan of having a cable cart that will start from the first station going up to Mount Zion and ends on the rooftop of the Kadem compound center, which is approximately, let's say 30 meters from the old city walls next to Dungate. And this structure will rise up to, to, to a height, which is even higher than the city walls. And that's just in contrast to the whole idea of having a national park there, uh, and, and, and we can have a footnote here, which uh, uh, obviously the, the residents, which are mainly Palestinians in these areas, are not uh, capable of doing any development or having very much struggling doing any development in their own uh, properties. And, and the state of Israel comes in and put this massive, huge construction next to the city walls. And, and it's important now to, to, to understand what were we appealing against? So we were obviously appealing against the whole plan, but we were appealing against the planning process, which went through, uh, let's say, the, I think it's called the National Infrastructure Committee. And when things go through this channel, uh, the normal process that involves, you know, objections by the residents and by professional organizations like Emek and others and by you know whoever wants to appeal against it through the normal committees you know you can come forward and, and appeal and here it was just ran through a different channel which was a shortcut that can prevent any any of these things we had some appeals uh, on archaeological sites on the West Bank, like uh, Tel Shiloh, Ceylon, uh, and the development uh, over there, and, and many other places. I think, I think we don't have a, 
uh, we should have another uh, chapter on on on, on archaeology and the legal stand because it's it's very interesting to to see and and you know I know you're interested in a bit more uh, recent history. Uh, many of the law here of, of archaeological laws are descendants of the Ottoman law, you know, that went through the British Mandate Law and turned into the Israeli or Jordanian laws. And I think the whole legal aspect uh, is, is worth having a, another conversation about. Well, I, I think that since uh, the famous Desaussi uh, excavation in the 1860s, uh, all of the various powers uh, that ruled, so obviously the, the British, uh, the Ottomans earlier, the Israeli and the Jordanians, uh, also for a period of time, they all implemented some rules and regulation about archaeology, understanding that obviously it is a controversial activity, and if not just between Palestinian and Israeli, uh, like in the current era, but also between religious um, denominations, often within the same faith, particularly when we talk about the Christians, obviously Catholics and uh, uh, Greek Orthodox, uh, had a lot of disagreements about uh, where to excavate, whether to excavate at all, and you know the meaning of of a finding. So certainly, is a very uh, complex uh, uh, activity. I'm it's curious a about one. It's a political activity. We change the map. We go to a place which was either forgotten or which changed uh, its meaning changed a long time, and we, we we change it and we excavate and we we turn it into you know a hill that had I don't know a, a name or a number or was sometimes nothing, and we turn it into a site and we give it a name and we give it. A lot of meaning and we tell different stories sometimes which was uh, you know either sometimes it's okay you know not too many people still care about neolithic uh, cemeteries at the moment so they don't claim uh, ownership over i know the bones or, or to prevent working but but you have communities in, in this place that relate to these places and we, we, we change them. And this takes me back to, to what I, I think I, I said about the power of archaeologists to, to, to change and, and the story and the narrative. And I think this is what, what, what motivated uh, powers or states to create this regulation. Well, I'm always fascinated by you know, archaeological excavations, particularly in Jerusalem, and the power they have to trigger not, not just uh, sort of political debates, but often also to trigger political violence, uh, which we have seen literally throughout the past 150 years, even 170 years, a number of excavations. Once they became public, they really triggered uh, uh, riots of various nature and size, sometimes smaller, sometimes even bigger. And again, it really shows the power of archaeology as a political tool. And I was wondering, you know, given the current situation in Israel, Palestine, particularly in Jerusalem, what are the most pressing issues for you and uh, Emek Chavez organization, particularly related to the city of Jerusalem? So I think the most pressing issue from, from, you know, obviously my perspective is, you know, archaeology and heritage. So I think the most pressing issue is the growing uh, connection between Israeli authorities, such as the IMPA, the Israeli National Park Authority, and the municipality of Jerusalem, and and settler organizations such of, of Elad, uh, which runs the city of David. I think this growing uh, or deepening relationship is putting a lot of stress on archeological and heritage sites because turning these places into you know, touristic uh, uh, attractions as goes along with the very monolithic 
Jerusalem that these settlers want to create. And this monolithic Jerusalem uh, neglects present day Jerusalem. It neglects 2000 years of history of Jerusalem uh, from let's say the second century and the failure of the Bar Kokhba rebellion, which uh, uh, sent us all to a 2000 years exile uh, story-wise. Um, and, and I think that creating this touristic attractions has a lot of meaning because it's normalizing, it's eroding the difference between East and West Jerusalem. It's, it's, it's creating this feeling or sense that Silwan is not in, in, in East Jerusalem. The, the old city is not East Jerusalem. It's not, is is an integral part of, of the whole Jerusalem and ancient Jerusalem uh, uh, within that. So, and, and we see this growing activity outside to different areas such as the Hinnom Valley, such as Mount of Olives these days. Um, and, and, and this heritage discourse that being used by uh, settlers is, is most stressful, stressing for, for me uh, and for us because it's taking a discourse that is beautiful, that, is, that can create and present the complexity and the change over time and the fact that different communities lived here a long time and it doesn't endanger anyone at the present, it shouldn't be. Uh, I mean, you know, in my tour, and maybe we'll talk about our tours later, and in the tour, we, we are saying that archaeology can be done in, in a way that is different, that is uh, not in order to claim ownership eventually. So uh, for me as an archaeologist, although I think I, I haven't seen, let's say, scientific uh, uh, academic proof for the existence of the palace of King David in Sidwan. If, if such were in, in our possession, if, if archaeological work has provided detailed uh, uh, significant proofs for that, I, I, I wouldn't care that there, there isn't King David. I, I don't have anything against King David. I don't want, I, I mean, we cannot completely ignore it. Obviously, it's a very meaningful uh, character in, in Israeli public. But I think that from uh, having King David Palace towards owning the land or, or changing the borders of Jerusalem, there's a big difference. It's a big gap that shouldn't happen. You just mentioned something that made me think about uh, also the question of uh, sort of uh, archaeological remains as, uh, you know, proof of what existed or not. I mean, for instance, the famous uh, Nia church, uh, which we knew it existed, uh, but there were no archaeological remains available up until I think the 1970s, where eventually was found. So there was proof, but we knew it existed, right? So we knew there was certainly a city of David, perhaps not as big as uh, many would like to claim. But you're right, then at some point you have to accept the fact that, you know, there's some build up on top of that area and we need to take into account the current, uh, the people living on that. And so I guess then archaeology has to deal with uh, the reality rather than just the claims and the past. I'm interested in something that you mentioned at the very beginning which is this concept of salvage excavations. And so I was wondering, what did you mean by salvage excavation? What do they mean to you and Emek Chavez? How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So in archaeology, we, we have, in the archaeology here, I mean, we have two main types of, of excavation. We have, let's call them academic excavations, which are uh, excavations which are being done, you know, in a process which you have a research question, and then you go to choose a site that might answer this question, or you have a question regarding a certain site, and you want to, to collect data, and you design a project, and it's an ongoing project. It might take years and years and years. And some excavations are being done for you know 20, 25 years. And so these are the, the academic ones. Salvage excavations come in place in, 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 this, in these places where we understand that development cannot be prevented completely. I mean, in in place like Israel and Palestine and on. I think entire Middle East, basically, uh, where people have been living for millions of years, uh, you can't really go to anywhere without uh, heating some, some archaeological remains. So salvage excavations come in place in order to excavate before development and to figure out what is going on and in most cases, we, we okay, I'll just give give back this land to the uh, contractor, and then they construct whatever it is—a shopping mall, a residence, uh, a road, I know, sewage, whatever it is. But uh, these excavations are designed to, as, as they are, to salvage, to go in to do a fast excavation. In most cases, very short time is being given and very uh, limited uh, uh, resources. Uh, and, and you know, you go in and you find what you find and you document what you document. And in, in some cases, you, you, there are important sites that were actually found in this way and were capped and, and development was prevented. The road was shifted or, or the, the shopping mall was, was uh, moved aside or canceled completely. Or, so there are many places which archaeology changed the plan, the planning uh, uh, process. Um, but it's, it's, 
important because it's also becoming more and more as a tool of uh, the Israeli Antiquity Authority to uh, excavate in order to develop touristic archaeological attractions. And it's kind of like a paradox because it's, it's this vicious circle uh, in, 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 and you see it in Silwan, in the city of David, with the pilgrimage uh, uh, road or the Givati parking lot, which are massive excavations, which are being done under the title of salvage excavation. And, and the pilgrimage road is, is a salvage excavation designed to find the road itself. So, what is the meaning of the finds? If you know what you're going to find and you do the whole process of excavation, and there's one thing important that I forgot to mention, we have to think about archaeology as a destructive act. Archaeology in a certain, let's call it a square or an area, can be done only one time because we dismantle the layers, we dismantle the creation of the site that was taken maybe thousands of years. Uh, all these accumulations take time and we dismantle them with, you know, a methodology, we collect, we document, we do all, all this, like, we measure things, we count, we publish it. But eventually what we do is we destroy these sites. And, and it's impossible to, to, to retrace it or to uh, uh, redo it once it's being done, also, also if it was covered again. So if I would excavate this in a square or a pit or whatever uh, and, and cover it, it will not remain as it was uh, uh, formulated throughout the years. So this is a, a salvage excavation. And, 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 and I think it's, it's being more and more used as a tool uh, um, for developing uh, archaeological uh, sites. And, and, and I think it's, 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 it's not, not a good practice, uh, actually. And I, I, I'm sure people from the Israeli Antiquity Authority might be a bit angry for what I'm saying. Uh, but uh, they're doing a great job. I have uh, not too much uh, criticize uh, on, on the people themselves. I think it's an organizational decision. It's a, a policy decision that needs to be changed uh, in this matter. I'm curious about uh, another sort of a point about the uh, Mechevet organization before we talk about tours and perhaps we're going to talk about something more positive uh, there is a line in the website that says that you and obviously the people working for Mechevet see archaeology as an endeavor that can benefit the common good and the very name sort of a middle valley suggests that do you think there is a chance that archaeology may be turned around and use for something different than just making claims? Sure, so first of all, archeology span is a science. It's an academic endeavor of researching uh, the history, the long history sometimes, a very long history of this land. It's a way of researching human behavior. How do we interact with artifacts? How do we interact with landscapes? How we do a lot of things. So it's, it's uh, the core of it is an academic uh, uh, interest. And this is what drives most archeologists is their academic or uh, curiosity of understanding basically how do we got here and, and, and what does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to, to, to I know, not being, uh, what does it mean to be uh, urban? What does it mean? A lot of these kind of, of, of things, uh, the processes that we can see and research through archaeology, uh, the fact that it is being used in order uh, to justify national claims or nationalistic 
claims is 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 a twist that uh, should be stopped in the and the responsibilities of archaeologists because archaeologists cannot come and say okay I published my materials I published my claims I published my interpretation uh, whatever this uh, member of Knesset or uh, uh, I know political activists are doing with it. It's on their responsibility, and how they construct their uh, his claims is uh, based on that. Is is their issue, not mine. Um, but we do share a big portion of of this responsibility. We should not leave this arena uh, empty, or because there is no vacuum here. And 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 I think. That yeah, shifting into a more constructive distract, uh, 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 discourse or discussion about archaeology should involve archaeologists. And and you said what we are writing on our website that should be, you know, served as a, as a bridge, as a way of of uh, bringing together communities, is by using elements of archaeology in order to to do that. It's to present that, okay, there were Neolithic people, then there were the early bronze people, then there were the Iron Age people, and they all came and left, and they all did things here. They cooked, and they prayed, and they cultivated their lands. Uh, and and to, to present that it is a process. It's a process of ever-changing place. It's a process that uh, people... Uh, and, relate to the place and it does not necessarily suggest that they are uh, bad or evil or good well that's uh wishful thinking i, I guess i uh, i hope, moment, I, can hope. Yeah. I, I can just hope <laughs> now moving towards the uh, last uh, couple of questions i have uh, i was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about uh uh, sort of this uh, more practical activity that also involves uh, people outside the Mechshaved, that is uh, the tours that you organize throughout Jerusalem and throughout Palestine. Can you tell us a little bit more what's the rationale of these tours and how they work? And then I will ask you later about a specific one. Okay, so, so basically our tours uh, approach different audiences. So we have tours which are designed more towards, let's say, historical, archaeological communities, architects, and so on. Um, but we, we also have uh, a lot of tools which are uh, open for the public. Um, and the idea behind it is that uh, we can, we, we hope to present an alternative perspective on archaeology. And, and by alternative, what I mean is that uh, it's not uh, uh, presenting uh, directly, you know, the Palestinian narrative, because I'm not a Palestinian, I'm an archaeologist. Um, but what we are trying to do in these tours is to present a different perspective on how to use archaeology, how archaeology is being done. We question a lot of the people, uh, and you would be amazed to, to, to hear the, the answers. Like in every beginning of my tour, I ask people, what archaeologists do? What do we do? What do we search for? What, what, what is the process of archaeology? So yeah, most people know that we excavate. Uh, some think it's dinosaurs, uh, which is not, no. Uh, but uh, some does not, most of the people does not really think re like in, in, in details, like what is the everyday? What, what do we do? We, we take this dirt and we sift it and we pick up the pottery shards. And, and all of this. So this is the beginning usually of the tours. Uh, but then we go on and we see how the archaeology is being presented and what does it mean to have archaeological site within a, a community which does not relate to it. What is this tension between the community and, and archaeology and how does this become a place of antagonism and how it becomes a place of, of depriving from lands. Um, and how it, be, it is being used to approach different audiences. Because obviously what you see in the museum or what you see in the presentation there in, in, in City of David is, 
is targeting certain audiences. So we question who, who is the target audience here? Who, who does it supposed to influence and to what action it's supposed to influence them? And so these are, uh, and it's all sitting on archeological basis because this is the, the, uh, the action that is being done in order to change the landscape. So this is the core and then we grow out of it into different elements of, of usage of archaeology or misuse of archaeology. You talked about different audiences and I was wondering if you can tell us who are the people actually taking these tours? Uh, obviously scholars, maybe uh, uh, people with a sort of an interest in uh, the current situation of Jerusalem, Israel and Palestine, but do you have specific categories of people that are coming and taking these tours? Yeah, so first of all, you have to understand that throughout history, like the recent history, archaeology shifted a lot of times, but it quite remained very much interesting for a lot of audiences in Israel. So a lot of people uh, from huge variety of ages and backgrounds have interest in archaeology. And you can see just, you know, if you go to the Israeli websites and use websites, you'll see, I think almost every week, there is, a, there is a, a, an article about archaeology, about a certain find. So people are very much into, uh, dealing with archaeology all the time. You know, in schools, they go to Misada, they go to Caesarea, they go to Tel Dan, Hatzol. So the, the people are, are involved with archaeology greatly in the, in the area. So. Uh, uh, we do have among Israeli audiences uh, a huge variety. Obviously, we have academic audiences uh, that uh, some, you know, uh, scholars approach us to bring their courses or uh, um, students who are organizing to come and join one of our tools. Um, uh, and we have also a lot of international audiences that uh, are, are coming. Uh, Unfortunately, our, our tools are only in Hebrew and English at the moment. Hopefully, maybe someday we'll develop uh, uh, more languages, uh, uh, tools in different languages. Uh, but we have people from all over the world coming uh, to our tools. Is, you know, people are interested and people are interested to, to experience a different uh, storytelling of, of ancient Jerusalem. I was wondering if you can take us uh, through one of your tours and uh, I'm just suggesting, but anyone would be great. <laughs> but because we talked about earlier, uh, obviously the city of David and Silwan and also the Givati parking lot. So for those that may, may not be familiar with the city of Jerusalem because they never visited or only visited once and you know take different tours. If one of the listeners would join one of your tour, how would it work? I mean, where do you start? What would you see? And where does it end? Wow. Ah, it's, uh, I love to imagine it. You know, a great way of uh, explaining how, how the tour is being viewed, I think. So we usually start at the Dungate uh, because this is the connection between the old city, which is being perceived as you know, the old city from the beginning of time. A lot of the people don't know they actually, the Southern Hill, Silwan, Vadihilwe uh, neighborhood is the ancient part of Jerusalem, which is at the moment outside of the old city walls. Uh, so we start there uh, and we talk about the old city as the center of Jerusalem, as the center of the tension and Tension and attention, but both. It's the center of attention as we have seen just recently with Ramadan uh, and, and Temple Mount Khan Sharif in the center of the center of it being the, you know, the heart of and, and, and radiating the influence all over the, this historical basin. Um, and then we start from there talking about what is archeology span and how we do archeology span and we do a brief introduction uh, to, to archaeology because it's, it's, it's important to understand, you know, some basic terms, stratigraphy and, 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 and such. And, and then we just start going down 
having our Givati parking lot on our right hand side, we're seeing it from above the, you know, the, the uh, huge area that was taken for this excavation. And then we continue and go into the city of David uh, Archaeological Park, which is uh, run by Elad Foundation. And we go to this outpost, which is on the rooftop there. And, and there you can see and feel, I think, and sense why they chose this place, uh, Elad, I mean, uh, uh, for their operation. Being just outside of the city walls, circulating it from south between the, the old city and Mount Zion and Mount of Olives. And we go over, you know, the, all the, the, the area that we're seeing and, and trying to understand what, what does it mean to bring people down here? Because it's, you can see the green line. The green line is in Mount Zion. You can see it and then you understand what, what does it mean to erode it? What does it mean to, to bring thousands of people uh, across this line to Silwan? And what does it mean? How does it influence on the old city itself? And how does this relate to the old city itself? And then we just go in down there, you know, they have all these underground archaeological uh, 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 park. And, and, and we talk about what does it mean to have underground archaeology, which is basically um, um, undermining, literally, but also metaphorically, uh, undermining the, the presence of, of Palestinians there. And what does it mean to have a, a touristic attraction which you don't see the landscape, which you have a very narrow uh, perspective and how it is being controlled and how you can control the narrative in a very uh, interesting way when you don't have to see, hear, smell, meet uh, uh, Palestinians. What does it mean to, to go in tunnels under, under houses uh, and we go through uh, several spots and we see different types of archaeology. We see the salvage excavation of the Bati parking lot and we talk about the difference between academics and salvage. And we go to see Shiloh excavations, which was an academic excavation. And we, we, we connect all these different types of archaeology, the underground, the one that is exposed, the one that is salvage. Uh, and, and we connect all these dots into how narrative is being done and how it is being translated. So we go over the different signs and we see what is being written. Okay, so there is a sign here that says, for example, the large stone structure. But underneath it, it says it's King David Palace. What is the difference between a large stone structure and King David Palace? what this transition demands, what happens in the background of it, in the storage room, in the, in the archives, where, ha where is the academic debate being translated here? Because obviously there was a debate, but the debate happens somewhere else. It does not happen on the sign. It happens in journals, which nobody reads. I mean, some reads, sorry, for the whole archaeological community, but some read these articles but it's in a different language, not just Hebrew and English, it's archeological language with all these terms. And, uh, and, and so it's not accessible. And what happens in the translation of this uh, research? And then we go further down uh, and going outside of the park into the village itself, into the Tisil uh, one. And we see the difference between a settler uh, houses and Palestinian houses, and we see how a Lud Foundation is much bigger uh, endeavor. And and I think one of my favorite spots is this connection between the village and the archaeological park. Is that you go down these stairs, and and you see this map, and there is this beautiful colored map, drawn, drawn, uh, hand drawn map. Uh, of Silwan, of City of David. And it looks like this beautiful uh, town somewhere in the mountains 
with all these green spots of trees and 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 plots of land and it's look a bit ancient and you see the archaeological park and all the houses looks nice and and you see the, the different tours that you can take and it's the contrast between that and and reality it does not reflect any of the tensions obviously it does not reflect any of the local community uh, I, i'm laughing because it's it's you know it's it's a bit embarrassing every time that that you go by that map and then we go in and and and, and we see uh, a bit more of archaeology in uh, uh, raymond weil excavations and we go uh, back into the more palestinian uh, side of silwan and we see the difference we get the contrast we get the contrast of what does it mean to, to live in a street where uh, most of the houses are Jewish owned? And what does it, how does it connect to, to, to the archaeological park, the archaeological experience? Um, and, and the contrast is, is, is great, is, is, is intense at some point. And we finish with the exit of materials of dirt from the underground excavations done on the pilgrims road and 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 there we we kind of like you know summarize everything and we present this uh, ongoing endeavor uh, that uh, i know someday probably will be open to the public well i made a point to myself that next time in jerusalem we certainly take one of your tours and encourage all of the listeners particularly those that are in israel and palestine to join one of them i have one last question yeah is there anything that i didn't ask about the activity the work of a mechave that you want to talk about so uh actually it's uh important for me to to just note something that uh, although we we deal a lot with advocacy, with you know dealing with the public narrative and everything, we are the core of our business is archaeology and how archaeology is being done and for what purposes and and how it is being translated into let's say common language, how it's being translated into narratives and. I think that uh, Jerusalem is at many times uh, the center or the focal place uh, for activity. We also operate both in, in the West Bank and these days we have a very big project around, project around Mount Ebal, latest publications that probably you and, and some of the listeners have saw the curse and, and all the uh, renewed interest in Mount Ebal and I hope that uh, uh, at least some of the listeners will uh, sign in to our newsletter and you know because we're about to publish a report regarding that and the use of settlers in, in archaeology in order to uh, change the reality in, in the West Bank but we also operate within, within Israel and, and we have a lot of conversations with archaeologists and preserve, uh, converse, uh, architects and uh, nature protection uh, organizations and uh, in, in places like Lod and Jaffa and uh, Haifa and other places. Um, so so the, the problems are, are a bit different in different areas, but, but there is this one line that uh, connects all of them is, and it's that, that we have to, to create a more tolerant uh, archeology span here. We have to be more uh, inclusive and not uh, taking out, just taking out things. We should bring in and embrace the fact that there are many stories, there are many, many narratives here and people can interact with with uh, archaeological sites in many different ways. It can be uh, in a national level, 
a part of your identity. It can be in a family level of your, it can be a personal because I know you had experienced something with the site and you love to go up there and sit on Tel Megiddo and read a book. It can, it, and it might be a very important part for, for, in your identity in part of your time. And, and it's okay. It does not endanger everybody and that, that you have these feelings towards. And I, I, I want that people will feel free to, to, to relate to different heritage sites and will find the opportunity to do so and find uh, you know, signs in a language that they can understand and read. And, and I think this is something that was important for me to say. This was Alon Arad, Executive Director of Emekshave. I will post the link to the uh, organization website, emekshavek.org. Alon, thank you so much. Thank you, Roberto. And Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.